Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We believe that prohibition and abstinence-only policies result in poor outcomes for society. We'll be discussing how drugs are sold, and perhaps more importantly, how they should be sold. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Our primary sponsor for this podcast is us. If you or someone you know uses nicotine products, we encourage you to visit lucy.co to try our range of delicious and satisfying products that we hope you'll find much better than cigarettes, vapes, smokeless tobacco, and other traditional tobacco products. Today, I'm joined by my co-founder, Sammy Hamdouche. Hi, Sammy. Hi, David. And Christy Noblick-Palmer. Hello, how are you? Hi. Uh, I hear you also go by KKP. Yeah, that works. Okay, cool. Um, So yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. So uh, Christy is a co-founder of Kiva Confections, which makes a range of edible cannabis products. And I'll let her provide some deeper background on herself now. Yeah, totally. Um, So I grew up in the Bay Area, California, Um, went to school in the Castro Valley area um, and went away for college in Santa Barbara. And that's where I met um, my now husband in photography school um, and moved back up to the Bay Area. And uh, the economy was tanking. This is like 2007. And so to uh, make ends meet, we uh, found ourselves looking to the cannabis industry to help out a little bit. So how did that happen more specifically? How did you find yourself looking into the cannabis industry? (laughs) Yep. So like uh, most starving artist couples in the Bay Area, um, cannabis offered um, another area for us to make money and make ends meet. And so we started a backyard garden shed um, cultivation and um, that really got us into the dispensaries. And that eventually led us to the, um, to the decision to go with edibles instead of um, cultivated plants is what we were doing at that time. Clones, basically, like small cuttings of plants. And so um, we jumped into the edible space because there was a lot more opportunity um, and no edibles at the time that were professionally packaged or looked like anything that we would want to buy or share um, with the people we knew. Got it. And so you started with flour, got into edibles, and you guys had personal experience using cannabis products, presumably before getting into this? Yeah. So um, growing up in the Bay Area, cannabis culture is like just part of the experience of being somebody that grows up in the Bay Area. So um, it was pretty open in my family and in my friend circle. Um, And so then uh, meeting Scott, he grew up in San Diego. He was a bit more conservative. His family was a bit more conservative, Um, grew up to two teachers. And so um, once once I, um, (laughs) he says corrupted, but I say enlightened him to (laughs) cannabis, um, then uh, you could really see that um, he, he really realized that there was no big deal about cannabis, right? I mean, you try it, you enjoy it, and it's, it's, it's really no big deal, right? All this prohibition is a bunch of hoopla for really no reason. Yeah. Um, so it Not was killing a ton of people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, it was just kind of a natural way for us to go. We were young, hun- hungry, naive. Um, and I think all those things really uh, were a blessing and, and led us to be a little bit more um, adventurous and, um, and take the leap that was required to get into the cannabis industry. Great. So when you were just starting out, were you making batches in your kitchen or did you just jump straight to sort of a professional setup? How did that work? Yeah, so we um, we started in our home kitchen um, in the house that I grew up in, actually, and um, yeah, we so we we worked in um, conjunction with the labs that were available at that time in the Oakland area, and really Kiva wouldn't have existed if there wasn't access to lab testing, and um, I say that because. The labs allowed us to quantify the amount of THC in all of the extractions that we were using that would go into the product. And that was a huge part of how Kiva was born because without that consistency and the ability to repeat the recipe every single time and make sure that every single product had the same amount of THC, we wouldn't, we just wouldn't exist because that really is what makes the Kiva brand succeed. Sure. And so I think a lot of people who have experience with cannabis and experience with edibles, uh, especially before the market got professionalized in in large part due to Kiva, have seen a a confection or 
let's say a brownie, right? A, a weed brownie, at least when I was in high school, was kind of the, the go-to edible and people would make them themselves. And if you were, if someone told you those are some weed brownies and then maybe they went to go grab a drink or go to the bathroom, you would eat one of the weed brownies and they would come back and they would say, you, you ate the whole thing? You're not supposed to eat the whole thing. And you'd go, well, why did they make them in units of one if, that's, if you're not supposed to? And then you would brace yourself for uh, a uh, extreme experience. Yes. And so that's one of the things. And I've used uh, Kiva products in the past, and, and I'm a huge fan, by the way. Um, and Kiva does this great thing where they have each kind of square very clearly delineated with regard to the strength. It tastes great. And, you know, I'm able to really effectively eyeball a dose that is comfortable for me. And uh, Sammy, I think maybe this would be a good time to, for you to share your Kiva story. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually, it's crazy to think of a time, you know, when you didn't know how much of a dose you were taking. Like that's, it's amazing that like you could take something as potentially, you know, potent as THC, like psychoactively and not know how much you were doing. Um, which is one of the big reasons I appreciate Kiva. But my my first experience with Kiva, um, I, it sounded like you've heard a lot of people's first experience, um, was a little bit different. Um, it was actually, uh, you know, with with David and um, he, uh, you know, one of the, the friends that he was living with at the time uh, just told me to, to grab a piece. And, um, you know, my biggest problem with, with edibles generally is that they just like, they taste so good that you just want to keep doing more. And so I think I ended up doing like half of a bar. Oh no. Half of like a one. It was like a one, you know, when something. you guys were making them in like 180 milligrams. Oh no, you poor thing. And, <laughs> and I had just had a big meal beforehand. So like it didn't hit me for like two hours or something, but when it did, <laughs> I was in for quite a night. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I have to say, I, I don't remember <laughs> a, good, a good portion of that. Um, but I do remember that um, I told myself that I would ever, for like from then on, I would know how much I was doing. <laughs> yes. Oh, so important. Well, I'm sorry for that experience. It's, it's my fault. <laughs> it's so, that's, it's so, it's so common though. It's crazy how often that happens um, to people. And, and it's also interesting how when people recall their story, how their friends laugh about it yeah. because it's, it is a scary experience, but uh, to this day, there's still no known deaths from cannabis consumption. So that's like the blessing and the light of the, at the end of the tunnel is even if you've overconsumed, you might want to die. You might hope that you will die. Well, you might think that you're going <laughs> to. You, I'm going to be the dead. first one. <laughs> yeah. I, I came out of that experience thinking that I knew what it felt like to die. <laughs> and I thought that actually kind of enriched my life in, in one way. And But, but to, you know, in, in fairness, too, is subsequently you have been a big fan of Kiva. You, you consume Kiva. Kiva is my favorite cannabis product. I'll just say that up Thank front. You. And it's not because you're here. That's that's really true. <laughs> it's true. You buy yeah, because you here. know exactly how much you're doing. You know that it's consistent. Like, you know that the quality is good. I just I haven't found a better way. To, it's the healthiest way to consume cannabis yeah we're um, very anti-smoking generally of any combustible plant material um i think you know uh cannabis smoking cannabis seems to be less harmful than and smoking uh tobacco certainly but mm -hmm. inhalation of any kind of smoke probably not ideal edibles probably healthier and yeah sammy orders them uh, on bulk in bulk and puts them in his freezer and uh we <laughs> We uh, are always laughing because Sammy's always trying to find where he can get the best price for, you know, the different. And so he's, he's going and, and checking. So um, we are we are really big fans. Awesome. So um, I guess going back to kind of the business side of things, um, what were some of the initial large challenges that you faced as you were getting this company off the ground? This is pre-recreation. This is all, you know, medicinal. And, and it seems like there's a disconnect between state city or state and municipal, obviously federal law. How did you navigate all that? Yeah. So, um, uh, we got started in, in a legal environment where, um, there were no regulations, right? There were no, um, there were no business related regulations. So, um, 
it was certainly tricky to navigate. I would say some of the biggest challenges um, at that time were was the lack of clarity around how to operate in an environment like that. So when you don't have any guidance, you're like, ah, uh, well, let's try this and see if that works. And let's locate here in Oakland and see if how long we can last here in this facility, in this warehouse. So um, just that lack of uncertainty was super challenging. Um, another one would be banking. That's, I think, the low-hanging fruit of challenges is banking. So you can imagine an environment where you're operating in um, a growing business and all of your customers are paying you in cash and your lar largest market is the LA market and your headquarters is in Oakland, what do you, how do you, what do you do with the cash? And you literally have to drive it across the state. Yeah. Um, so all kinds of nuanced challenges like that existed. Um, then some still um, exist today. So not all of that has been ironed out just yet. Um, but also challenges around meeting demand. That's that's been a, a consistent challenge um, over the years. It's which, a good problem to have. Yeah, amazing problem to have. Um, another one would be hiring, finding um, quality employees. Um, that problem has pretty much solved itself um, as legalization has really opened up the opportunity um, and people are looking for the next opportunity in their career growth. And so cannabis offers a pretty unique um, position for itself. Sure. And so I'm envisioning you guys are just like best friends with some mercenaries who drive Brinks trucks full of cash across the state is basically how it worked. Yeah. Yeah. We did a lot of that transport um, on our own. Wow. Um, Was that nerve wracking? Uh, you know, yeah, it is. The, the level of risk involved there is... Um, is ridiculous, right? It's, it's dispensaries like, get robbed or traditionally got robbed uh, somewhat frequently. Yeah, that was definitely a problem. Um, and that was actually one of the benefits of having a manufacturing company or a brand and distribution company. Because when you ask um, people like, oh, what, what types of businesses exist in the cannabis industry? They're like, um, grows and dispensaries, right? But they kind of forget that whole middle part of the supply chain. Sure. Um, so we were able to kind of fly under the radar a bit, um, which which was definitely a blessing. But yeah, it didn't, um, didn't come without its challenges and, and risk for sure. And so from a supply chain perspective, you would source high quality flour and then extract the THC oil and how did you do that initially? Has that changed as the business grew? Yeah, totally. So, um, yeah, in the in the very beginning, we were uh, making our own oils in our um, in our home in our home kitchen, or actually in the garage. And uh, my husband Scott, he basically set up a uh, distillation system, um, an ethanol distillation system in our garage. So <laughs> you can imagine uh, opening the garage door, and that didn't really. If you uh, weren't familiar with distillation, that looked like uh, a much harder, <laughs> harder like core Walter drug. White kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah. um, so we started there with an oil, um, but back in the day, there was no way to clarify that oil or refine that oil as there is today. So you end up with a crude basically, and it's this dark green kind of, uh, uh, just, a, a an oil full of cannabinoids and plant material and chlorophyll. So, um, you get a lot of flavor variation from that. So uh, a few weeks into the company's, um, inception, we abandoned that oil because we couldn't get a positive flavor profile. Um, so we moved into a cold water hash for um, our chocolate bars at that time. And that's a product that we still use today. Um, kind of a bit of a differentiator for us actually. Because um, oil, now you can clean it up from a crude form and get a nice golden oil. Um, but at the, uh, at that time you were unable to do that. So cold water is a bit of a, um, like I said, a differentiator for us. It's more expensive. Um, it's a little bit harder to find. And um, really we've got roots that run deep in California now. So um, we've got sources that we can go outside of our company, but we also make that in-house um, at a scale that satisfies the demand we're seeing here. And so can you describe that process a little bit more for those of us who might be unfamiliar, such as myself? Is yep. it, I mean, I'm imagining like cold brew where you're just like soaking some kind of concentrated 
THC in cold water or something like that? Yeah, or? yeah, it's um, yeah, you're pretty close. So the cold water hash making process, hash in its in and of itself is one of the oldest extraction methods like ever, right? It's been um, I, ice water hash has been used for many many years, water hash many many years. So um, it's a very natural kind of old school way of concentrating THC. So the way uh, the way it was done and the reason we brought it in house. Um, so the way it was done was on a really small scale. So like, um, you would visit a cultivation, they'd be making an, uh, ice water extraction. They'd have a big garbage can and like, a, a sieve or like a screen, like cheesecloth kind of material. And then they throw the, um, trim into that cheesecloth and agitate it with really cold, um, ice water. And that basically knocks the trichomes off the back of the leaf. Um, and that's what contains the THC is the trichomes. And so then you, uh, that, um, those trichomes, um, are in that water mixture. So then you have to run that water mixture through a series of screens to sift out the water and the THC from, um, from each other. Mm -hmm. And so the old school method is in a, is in a, like a garbage can set up out in the field. Um, but what, uh, we've done over the years is brought that process in house to maintain quality and consistency. Cause you can imagine the variation in quality when you're, um, you know, you're not uh, at proper scale or you're not using the proper equipment. So that's something that we've done is brought that process in house so that we can uh, make sure it's done properly. Now the industry is at a place finally where we don't have to make everything on our own. Um, we can find professional licensed operators in the marketplace that can uh, match us or beat us on quality. So we have more options in which to source um, ingredients now. That's awesome. And so it's almost like um, the opposite case of a lot of businesses where you gradually vertically integrate. You guys seem like gradually whatever the opposite of vertically integrating is. <laughs> Horizontally integrate. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So you're seeing actually, it's really strange time in cannabis right now. So you're seeing both models take place. You're seeing companies like ours that are like, let's focus on what we're really great at. Let's take the in and out burger model and let's just make amazing cannabis confections. Um, and then you're also seeing other companies saying, how can we um, recover some of the costs or how can we cut out some of the steps and they've got, a, they've got a big raise, a big capital raise that they've just done. So they begin to actually vertically integrate um, to make their lives easier, potentially. <laughs> sure. And so how did you guys source and how do you source your base ingredients like flour, for instance? Yeah, so we work with cultivators um, all throughout the state, but primarily in the Northern California region. Mm -hmm. So the humble Mendocino sure. areas are super popular. Um, and then some other areas coming up online are like the Salinas area. Mm -hmm. So um, that's a becoming a, a big hotspot for cannabis cultivation or has been for the past few years. And then the Santa Barbara, um, Santa Barbara County areas have also become really popular. And you're seeing now cities um, and counties position themselves for cultivation. So they're offering more competitive rates. Um, they're offering tax, uh, lower taxes to operators as a way to attract them to their area. So um, finally, like our, our state officials and local officials are starting to recognize the true opportunities that cannabis has to offer. That's awesome. And so it sounds like supply for flour is increasing. Is there any bottleneck? It seems like you, you were saying there are co-packers or, or co-manufacturers who will supply oil. Um, so supply constraints, not not too big of an issue for you guys anymore? So um, the the constraints that we're feeling are less on the, on the actual supply of cannabis and far more on the regulatory side and the um, specifically the issuance of licenses. So, um, and to get, to really dive into that in 2017, um, Kiva did, did business with about um, 1,200 uh, retailers throughout the state of California then 2018 hit when we got our um, uh, recreational cannabis went into effect and we woke up January 1st, 2018 with like 10 licensed stores that we could do business with. So cities and counties are, um, they're kind of using that like NIMBY perspective, like not in my backyard mm -hmm. and they don't necessarily want to license cannabis businesses 
in their cities. So we've seen a slow uptick in um, the acceptance of cannabis businesses. So that would be, I think, the biggest uh, bottleneck right now. So does that imply that Kiva... But if you were selling Kiva before, then it was uh, medically allowed and those the medical dispensaries were still allowed to exist. So I, I don't quite understand. Yeah. So in 2018, you're exactly right. The medical dispensaries were still allowed to exist until the beginning of 2019. And so we had a whole year there where they were still um, able to serve uh, patients. However... Um, as a, uh, as a company and operator that was issued a license, Kiva was issued a license. We could only work with other licensed companies. So those dispensaries, those, uh, we call them the prop 215 dispensaries, the medical collectives were still allowed to operate, but unless they had a license, Kiva could not, um, serve them with its products. So we sort of got shut out of all of those, um, unlicensed businesses, which make up a huge part of the market. So that's one of the big challenges is without having enough issue, uh, license issued, we can't access those retail stores. So therefore we can't access those consumers. So who can access those unlicensed dispensaries, other unlicensed manufacturers? Um, theoretically, yes, although that's not allowed. So those, um, those, those stores were, uh, were supposed to have shut down at the beginning of 2019. So basically two months ago. Um, and so, uh, so they're, they're not supposed to be supplied by anyone. They're currently not legal. Um, but enforcement in the state is really low. Um, we have seen barely any enforcement, both from local city Police aren't enforcing, and the state hasn't really provided um, any resources. So those stores are still thriving. And uh, and the catch, I think, the worst part is, as a consumer, you you wouldn't be able to tell the difference really. Um, and in fact, the the biggest difference you would notice would be prices. So the prices in those illegal shops are lower because they don't have any regulations or they're not getting a state license. So they don't have anything to comply with like the legal operators do. Got it. So there's actually now incentives in the marketplace for unlicensed manufacturers to come in, challenge you guys, beat you on price all the while violating the law. And you guys are trying to be good actors. That seems very frustrating. Yeah, it's super frustrating. So it's, um, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's part of the fact that California has such a robust cannabis marketplace. And then we gave, with the Prop 64, the recreational um, initiative that passed in California, we gave cities the ability to have all the control on how many businesses they wanted to license. So you go to a, um, a city council meeting and you see all the people in the stands, they come up and they say, well, what about the children, right? And you're like, well... Um, there already are illegal businesses operating here. So the children already have access to cannabis. So why don't we bring these businesses into the light, um, give them licenses, monitor them, regulate them. Um, and then we'll have a safer, more, um, above board cannabis industry, right. That we can all, um, monitor, collect taxes from and regulate. So we're just kind of stuck in this, uh, in between phase where, um, where cannabis still doesn't have the normal, uh, the normalization or the destigmatization that it requires to be, um, to have more access and to be more normalized really. Sure. And so what do you think is the ideal solution? Do we need like a state cannabis czar or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, man, the ideal situation is that um, is that the local governments that uh, where the cities where the the residents of the local of the local city if they voted yes on Prop sixty four then that city should have to license businesses there and it should it could be like a per capita kind of thing so if you have a million people you need x number of retail stores and x number of manufacturing licenses available um for operators so it's going to take it it's a big it's a big fix it's not like oh this one thing will help all of it um it's a like a multi-prong approach but that would be a good start it seems like um you know this industry could take a lot from the alcohol industry as far as how regulations are enforced and uh, what the regulations are in the first place. Like what are the parallels with how California, for example, treats alcohol and regulates alcohol? Um, and, you know, what are the potential differences? 
Yeah, I would say, um, and I'm no expert in alcohol um, regulation per se, but um, I would say the major differences between the two is, um, I, you know, I think it's, I, it really, I think it really comes down to the acceptance of cannabis um, right now, and people are afraid of it. So, whereas, like, um, take Budweiser for example, in um, in Fairfield, California. They have a massive manufacturing facility there, um, tons of jobs, and um, it's a really an economic um, development agency. And so you don't get that with cannabis in Fairfield. They don't even have a way to apply for a license right now. So um, you're just seeing you're you're seeing cannabis at its very beginning, and so people don't yet quite know um, what what to do with it or how to, how to handle it. There's still so much fear around having a cannabis business in your, um, in your neighborhood. So I think that's a really big difference is the, the residents of the city have no idea how to, how to treat this. Yeah. I mean, in an ideal world, um, cause I think we can all agree here that cannabis is less harmful than alcohol in terms of certainly in terms of, you know, number of people that it harms, you know, uh, per year, um, and you know, just the level of impairment and toxicity. Um, you know, in an ideal world, would you see cannabis regulated in the same way that um, alcohol is? That you know, it would be available in um, places like you know, convenience stores and in um, in like bars. Obviously, not alcohol bars, but places where people can walk in and sort of order um, cannabis products. Um, sort of in um, in broad daylight, um, is that what you would kind of see as the future? Yeah. Um, as a, as a product company, as a brand, absolutely. That is like the, um, the dream of a, of a cannabis brand is to be, um, on the shelves of Safeway or Costco or Whole Foods, um, or 7-Eleven, um, right there where, where there's the most amount of access. Um, I think we're, we're a, a long time away from that as right now um, cannabis products are held up in dispensaries and that's the only channel in which we have to make our products available. And then you've got cities that are only allowing very few, if any, dispensaries at all. So um, yeah, that would be the, that would be awesome. That's totally like the long, the long game strategy for sure. Yeah. Seems like it could be very, very reasonable vision. Um, I, I'm curious about. So it seems like the industry is is evolving towards being a lot more professional, and um, there's still kind of um, maybe like remnants of a stereotype where people that are in the business of cannabis um, are stoners, and um, you know, you obviously are very professional. Um, and have been very successful. Uh, but have there ever been moments where you've been dealing with other people in the industry um, as like, you know, the owner of a um, dispensary or a distributor or something like that, or, you know, a grower where you've kind of like, you know, had to like smack your head? <laughs> um Yes, <laughs> there are um, certainly some uh, very colorful characters in the cannabis industry. Um, and I have lots of great stories about all of the um, fun characters that I've met over the years. So definitely the cannabis industry um, attracts a unique breed. Um, I do think that we're seeing uh, more professionalism enter the space, as you mentioned, like on a daily basis because um, the opportunity is huge and now we have regulations so now we have a like concrete foundation it's still changing so it's not perfectly um it's not a perfectly like uh set in stone type of foundation but um we actually have we have rules now so we know what we can and can't do and that is really great for business and for investment because it, it that it's that level of certainty that you need to um, to continue to professionalize. So at the same time, we don't want to see all of the players of the cannabis industry, all the pioneers of the cannabis industry chased out. Um, right. That's what gives the cannabis industry its flavor and its kind of um, homegrown nature. Uh, but I think at the same time, we do uh, certainly welcome more professional people into the into the market. Can we hear 
a story about a colorful character in the <laughs> cannabis industry? Sure. Um, let's see. So, uh, so there is a, um, a dispensary operator who, um, is actually still on the, it's still on the market. Um, and he is a Buddhist monk, um, and just the sweetest person you've ever met, the most gentle, kindest person. He sits down in a chair next to you and you're just like, oh, right. Like you're just, your whole body relaxes. You're like, wow, this is, I mean, like, who is this person? And, um, we used to actually source hash from him, um, probably about five years ago. And, um, the way that he liked to communicate about, um, purchasing hash over text message and in phone calls, um, was talking, referring to it as, as a book, like a book was a pound of hash and pages were grams of hash. So he would say like, okay, I have two books for you. Um, one with 454 pages and another one with 350 pages. Right. So you're like, okay, that's a pound and 350 grams on the side. So, um, yeah. That like, sounds paranoid. It doesn't sound very Zen. That sounds like he's <laughs> trying to communicate in code because he's worried. Well, and that was the times, right? That was, um, probably 2014 and, um, we didn't have any medical, regulations like everybody was really taking a lot of risk so um even being able to communicate about this stuff over text message was actually like a big leap for um the cannabis industry there were plenty of vendors that only wanted to meet in person or um wanted to use like you know uh text messaging systems that were like uh, you know like off the grid that were like um totally secure and encrypted so um so why were you yourself not concerned or maybe you were um, you know, I guess, um, Kiva always took a stance of trying to do things right, um, from the beginning. So we were set up in a way that, um, we weren't as concerned, I think, because we had, um, put a lot of thought into the way that we set up our business. Um, we were patients, we had a collective of patients, um, we were manufacturers. Again, we weren't um, necessarily in the cultivation space or the retail space. And if you looked at um, any number of uh, cannabis um, convictions or um, uh, issues in the in the operator space, um, they they didn't really fall around manufacturing. So um, we felt a bit more, I guess, um, protected in a way. And it sounds like. Being in Northern California, being in Oakland and having, I assume, an open dialogue with your local regulators provided a certain level of comfort. Yeah. Yeah. There wasn't, um, there wasn't too much dialogue, um, able to be happening at that point in time because there weren't really cannabis ordinances, um, in place. So, um, there still was a ton of risk, but you know, I think just we've, we felt like we were doing things right. Um, and I think that, uh, acting responsibly and paying your taxes and, um, just being a, simply being a good neighbor. Um, I think that that gave us a lot of, uh, that kind of sense of comfort as well. And so it seems like in the cannabis industry, potentially the biggest no, no is that you would not drive a truck full of product across to another state. Is that kind of, that's where people really i mean almost unanimously draw the line yeah that's um that's one of the that would be probably among some of the biggest risks that you could take in the cannabis industry yeah so is kiva present in other states and if so how <laughs> we are present in other states and um the way that we uh handle out-of-state expansion is to manufacture the product in that state so um, we, uh, we work with other companies in a licensing arrangement. So we actually license our know-how and our logos and our packaging um, to operators in other states. And then they have chocolate making equipment and mint making equipment that they use there to make the Kiva products to our spec. Do you plan to buy equipment or those manufacturers or how do you plan to expand? Is that on the horizon? 
Yeah, so um, we'll continue to pl- uh, to expand into other states, um, both with a, a combination of potentially licensing operations, or we may go in and, and buy our own license and set up our own manufacturing facility. It just kind of depends on the, oper- uh, the opportunity available in each state. So um, a, a teeny tiny state versus a large state. Um, those are considerations, right? Population. Um, so the demographic makeup also, how difficult is it to get a license there? What's the competition like? Um, and each state has its own requirements for getting a license, right? So some states require, uh, your bank statements to, um, make sure you're properly funded before they'll give you a license and others, um, just, they just all have different standards. So it just comes down to the opportunity, the capital required, and uh, a mix of things. And does Kiva have investors? Um, yes, we do. We um, we took on investment in the middle, middle of last year for the very first time. So we were bootstrapped um, up until that point. But with um, changing regulations and sort of the competition and the heating up of the market, um, Scott and I looked at each other one day and we were like, yep, today's the day. <laughs> Time to uh, put a little fuel in the tank so that you can um, overcome the just the changes, the, the vast changes that we were experiencing last year. So how do you put that money to work? Um, so hiring people is a huge one. Um, so we have expanded the team um, drastically over the past six, eight months, um, bringing in, uh, as I like to say, other people to worry alongside us. Um, sure. <laughs> so it's uh, it's really nice when an email comes in and there's uh, you know the um, the VP of sales and you on the email and you're like, ooh, I'm just gonna I'm gonna wait an hour until he answers this one. Sure. <laughs> um, so sharing in the responsibility and the accountability of the business has been huge. Um, and the reason it's great when somebody like that answers the email first is because they bring their experience and their skills from other industries into this one. And um, they they just, uh, they have that experience to, to tackle some of those difficult um, problems and challenges. Does everybody on the team use cannabis? Ooh, it's not a requirement. Okay. Um, but I would say probably 99% of the team does, yeah. How often do you use your own product and what SKUs do you personally use? Yeah, um, let's see. I probably use our products like maybe twice a week. Um, my favorite um, is our Petromints. So those are, um, why I love that product is because it's two and a half milligrams of THC per piece. So that's the product that you can eat. And then two hours later, you're like grocery shopping and you're like smiling at the spaghetti <laughs> sauce and you're like, oh, which one should I buy? Right. And you're like, oh, All of them. oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm feeling now I'm smiling and now I remember why. So I love that one because you can just you can go about your daily activities and it doesn't throw you off your game. Um, the other products that I love, um, are gummies and those just came out a few months ago. Um, they have the most amazing taste. The flavors on those are amazing. The pineapple habanero is, um, definitely my favorite. It's nice and sweet up front and then a nice little zing right there at the end. Um, and five milligrams of THC per piece. So, um, that's twice the potency of the petriments. So great for sleep. Um, that flavor happens to be uplifting. So amazing, like take that, go for a hike and you just, you'll spend like three hours just, um, you know, kind of letting your mind wander and enjoying the sights and the smells more than you would if you didn't. Sure. And so it seems like there's a trend that is happening across edibles generally, um, moving away from these products that uh, initially seem to have to establish their efficacy of effectiveness by being super potent. And now there's kind of these micro dose type edibles. And so is that uh, is that a continued sort of future area of development for you guys to, to go into that category and and who's the consumer in that in that category? Yeah, certainly. So um, we'll definitely continue to pursue the microdosing um, strategy and microdosing anything under five milligrams, five milligrams or less of THC per piece is what I would consider, and that really helps us. Um, 
appeal and um, and capture that beer drinker or wine drinker consumer. Um, and as Sammy mentioned, like it's really easy to eat too much and have a negative experience. And he actually came back into the edible space, which um, I think is asking a lot um, because it's it's easy to eat too much and that creates a negative experience. And so we really have focused on trying to help people get exactly the amount that they're looking for not too much, right? We're like, eat just one or eat one square. Um, so that that way it's measurable for people, it's repeatable, and they can use cannabis responsibly to get the desired effect. Sure. And so do you provide directions around, you know, Sammy said having a big meal beforehand could delay the effects. Do you say maybe have this before your dinner rather than afterwards? Yeah, we have some guidelines for um, for consumption on our on our um, packaging itself, we um, we do instruct people to start with five milligrams or less and wait two full hours before um, before increasing their dose. Um, so that that catches most people um, who are experiencing edibles for the first time who maybe eat uh, a square and then ten minutes later eat another square and keep repeating every ten minutes until right. <laughs> until then finally two three hours catches up with them and then they're like you know on the couch for a day. So we're, uh, yeah, we try to, we try to slip information there, um, on our packaging where relevant so that people understand to go slow. Yeah, that makes sense. What are some of the limitations as far as like, you know, why can't edibles work faster? Um, is that, is that like a, um, a, a biological barrier or is that something that, you know, technology can overcome? Is that something you were working on? Yeah, so um, it, is a, it is a biological factor of edibles. So if you um, consume an edible orally, then it has to go through your liver. Um, and so it's that process of going through your liver that um, takes time. There is a lot of research being done around speed to onset. And so um, speed to onset technology is made to um, have the uh, the cannabinoids absorbed either through the mouth sublingually or um, in the stomach before it reaches the liver. And so uh, there's a lot of research being done around that technology right now. Um, Some companies are starting to use it, um, but not all that technology is working. So there's still a lot of uh, development that needs to be done to really nail that speed to onset. What do you think about CBD and some of these other pure cannabinoids that are starting to be extracted uh, potentially at a cost-effective, in a cost-effective way. Um, Is that something you guys are interested in exploring? Yeah, so um, the CBD is really interesting um, and isolating the other cannabinoids also really interesting. Um, There's something to be said still about that entourage effect. Um, And CBD, I think, is the perfect example of that. You're seeing a ton of CBD just out in the world, right? At coffee shops and chocolates and tinctures, you name it, like it there's a food company or a a hair salon using CBD, making some kind of promise. Um, But I think what, uh, if, if you've ever consumed pure CBD and you're not currently experiencing symptoms that CBD promises to fix, um, often people say, Oh, I didn't feel anything Mm. or it's not working Mm. Uh, because CBD is only going to help you if you have, symptoms that it can attack, right? So if you don't have any inflammation, um, then you're probably not going to feel anything from CBD potentially. So um, I think it's, it's, CBD has got a bit of a buzz around it right now as being like a cure-all, which I think is uh, probably not where it should be. I think it's just like a, it's a trend. It's, it's sort of like gluten-free and everybody Mm -hmm. um, gloms on to eating, eating Mm -hmm. gluten-free, even if they don't have a sensitivity to gluten. I think it's the same, I think it's the same thing with CBD. It's very trendy right now. Um, But given all of that, I think the research behind some of these cannabinoids is really interesting and it will be um it'll be fun to see how companies innovate and use cannabinoids um differently uh other cannabinoids cbg thca thcv you name them there's hundreds um to really dial in effects and help consumers get what they're looking for sure and so there's there's some uh companies that particularly in the vape pens that 
claim that you can get different kind of effects based on the different uh, THC to CBD terpene profile. What do you think about that? Yeah. Um, so I think it's it's pretty cool, actually. So um, our gummies, for example, we're using a terpene ratio in that as well to help create effects. Um, so you're, And you're absolutely seeing it in vape pens also. Um, so I think that's just kind of the beginning of the innovation that can be done around both cannabinoids and terpenes um, combined. Got it. And... So how, how did people decide what those effects are? Do you have kind of like a focus group or you, everybody at the company who is a cannabis consumer, you say, sit down, it's Friday, this is our version of happy hour. And now everybody go around and write how you feel? Or <laughs> We do some of that, yes. Okay. Um, we definitely test uh, internally and do um, studies internally with our own team, which um, everybody loves. And then <laughs> um, there's also already research done on many of the um, terpenes. So like the terpenes that you find in lavender, for example, are studied and known to um, create a relaxing effect. So a lot of that research um, already exists is available. Got it. And then what do you think about people that mix, you know, cannabis products with other products like alcohol? Is that something that you guys think is, can be done responsibly? Do you worry that maybe the effect of drinking and using cannabis could be problematic? How do you guys think about it? Yeah. Um, so I think, uh, you know, on the record, it's probably not a great idea to mix um, cannabis and alcohol. But off the record, um, I think it's a. I think the two combined responsibly is not too big of a deal. I think the general public probably doesn't know enough about cannabis consumption to safely um, mix with alcohol. But um, I know in personal experiences, um, consuming cannabis alongside alcohol actually helps me consume less alcohol. And I think that's a pretty, I found that too. yeah, it's a pretty common, um, it's a pretty common, um, uh, finding I think. And, uh, you know, you can have like a glass of something and smoke a joint or use an edible. And then, you know, you, um, you get a little bit of cotton mouth, right? So then you're continuing to drink water for the rest of the evening, which is kind of sure. cool. Yeah. So um, it's a nice way to, I think, reduce in some areas um, like alcohol consumption. Um, but, you know, I think a lot of people too are speculating on how how nervous the alcohol industry is about cannabis coming in. Well, I, I think that um, as consumers, we we will use both next to each other. I don't think, um, I don't have any plans to replace all of my alcohol consumption with cannabis because I don't get the same effect um, from cannabis as I do from alcohol, quite frankly. So I think the two um, can certainly live in the same, uh, in the same place. Yeah, that makes sense. And so then switching gears for a second, I, uh, how do you plan to respond to the rising competition of more people entering the cannabis space, more edible companies emerging. How are you going to stay on top of the competition? Continue to make cool shit. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. um, Innovation for sure. So uh, we're certainly not done uh, infusing um, mediums with cannabis. There is a, there are a million things that, um, you can put, um, cannabis into. So, um, definitely innovation on the flavor side, on the product category side, um, and then communication, marketing, telling the story, um, participating in podcasts such as this, just, you know, continuing to get the word out there. People are absolutely starving for cannabis information. And so um, I think educational campaigns and just information forward campaigns are really helpful for people. And and that's um, that's helping a company stand out. Can you think of any marketing campaigns or types of marketing initiatives that you feel have worked especially well for you guys? Yeah. So we've done a lot of, um, in-store marketing over the years. Um, we're just starting to experiment with billboards. The difference between, um, in-store campaigns and billboards is in-store campaigns. You've, 
you've got a cannabis consumer walking in the door, right? So if you um, are handing out free samples or um, a pamphlet, a brochure, you are putting that into a into the hands of somebody who is about to make a purchase. Um, when you have a billboard, you are uh, you're relying on access in the area to be available to that person, so they can see your billboard, pull off the freeway, and go into a store. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think. The in-store has been really effective, but in-store is getting pretty noisy. And so, um, and we want to bring new consumers in to the market as well, have them um, try products and get familiar with cannabis. And so we're, you know, we're dipping our toe into both areas. Awesome. Um, So you made a conscious decision to focus on edibles at the beginning. Um, Are you concerned at all about the potential um, health effects from, um, you know, smoking or vaping cannabis, especially as, you know, adoption increases, as it becomes less stigmatized and people, you know, have this assumption that cannabis um, is, or, you know, they have the association of cannabis with, with health and with wellness, um, especially for CBD, that that could be, um, you know, kind of a, a false, um, you know, a false signal given that they're still inhaling or, um you know, vaping something that, that is potentially, um, toxic, not necessarily the THC itself, but the other chemicals that they're inhaling. Yeah. So I think, um, in California, our, um, regulations are among some of the strictest. So, um, and that's around pesticide contamination, um, heavy metal contamination. So there's a lot of, um, attention around consumer safety in the products that are being released right now. Um, but it's still very new. So, um, I guess potentially in years from now, we could see that there are some adverse health effects. Um, and that's, I think that's, it's so, it's so interesting to see, like you go into another state and the, um, another state, for example, may not allow edibles at at the onset or even in Canada. That's the case right now. So the only way to get cannabis is in a flower form or a vape form. Um, so it's really interesting to see some places are not even um, comfortable allowing the consumption of edibles. They still believe that inhaling flour or vaping is like the only method to consume. So I think it's still all pretty new, um, but it, it does seem that edibles are the safest bet at this point. I'd put my money on that. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have any advice for an aspiring cannabis entrepreneur out there who? is very interested in the space and and would want to get involved. It's a tough time right now to, um, to get involved. Um, so I, I like to tell people to, um, to be aggressive. Um, women in particular, actually, when they're looking at an opportunity in the cannabis industry is the opportunity is now, um, we're, we're in it right? Like, um, if you wait a year or two or five, um, it's going to be a different marketplace. Um, but at the same time, it's a very difficult time to get into the market right now. Um, people are raising insane amounts of money. There's these weird behaviors going on in the marketplace. Companies are pulling out all the stops, um, and doing all kinds of strange things that you wouldn't see in any other, um, any other space. So, uh, the rules of engagement are just a bit unpredictable and ever changing. So, um, yeah, for a, a new entrepreneur, man, get ready. Hold on. <laughs> it so- sounds almost like you're saying, don't even try to compete with me. <laughs> <laughs> I hate saying that because I think competition is is really good. It's really great for the consumer mm-hmm. and it's great for companies like mine because it keeps us on our toes and ahead of our game. And um, so I think competition is really important. I would never want to crush anyone's dreams. I think it's just important to be realistic about how much money it's going to take. How good is your idea? Um, because there's a lot of people looking at the opportunity in cannabis and it's, it's really cutthroat right now. Yeah. It's certainly competitive time. Um, well, thank you. I I think we've run out of all of our questions, so we we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you, Christy. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Really appreciate you guys. Awesome. Thank you.